And so it actually afforded us a little bit of flexibility and time to figure stuff out. So what we did was for the handful of customers that truly, really loved the product, we asked if they'd be willing to pay upfront for a year revenue in exchange for a discount. And that funded the team of four for eight to 12 months, something like that. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. Today on the podcast, I have somebody who I've been, I guess we could say stalking for quite a while on the internet with what he's done with starting Privy. He sold it to Attentive. The growth's just been phenomenal with what he's done with his SaaS tool. In addition to that, he has one of my favorite podcasts, the e-commerce marketing school podcast. If you're at all doing something around the consumer space or e-commerce, there's a lot of good stuff there, but super excited to have Ben Jabawi on. But Ben, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Jim, pumped to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, so I was sending some questions ahead of time going through your stuff, but one thing that I saw is we are both both girl dads with, I think, girls under the age of, of six, right? So how old are your two girls? Yeah, my oldest is six. She's entering first grade, and my youngest is about to be two. Oh, man. Yeah, well, I think you and I have the same morning routine. I basically, it was our... Our two and a half year old, we laid out like four outfits for her. She declined all of them. And then we immediately had our smoothie spill everywhere, which is about average for a morning with us. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, for us. I mean, we went through that phase too, where she took ownership of her outfits. I'll never forget that. And then uh, these days, it's uh, a battle over what music we're playing. Believe it or not, we're still stuck in Frozen land. My, my two-year-old just got into Frozen or Sing 2, which actually has a great soundtrack. So, Wow. Yeah. Frozen, man. They, they're going to make money on that movie forever. We are still deep in the Frozen soundtrack. It's funny. We literally just watched Sing 2 this weekend and the soundtrack's awesome. So I'm sure everybody's tuning in to hear us talk about Girl Dad Life. Yeah. Well, first... Ben, what is Privy and can you speak to anything around the size or scale of, of the company? I know you have to be like sensitive with some data since you did sell this company, but anything you can talk about so people really understand what you've built? Yeah, so Privy is one of the top downloaded apps on Shopify. So e-commerce businesses that are looking for tools, they download apps. Privy is one of them. But what do we do? We're, we're an email and SMS marketing platform built specifically for e-commerce stores that are doing between zero and five million in revenue. We have 80 full-time employees on the Privy team. Obviously, Attentive is significantly larger than that. And today, Privy serves over 100,000 Shopify stores. Those are stores that are actively using, using the Privy software. So pretty significant scale. Can't speak much to, to new revenue numbers, but I uh, used to share a lot of that. So you can probably dig it up on my Twitter and all that. Ben, you say that so nonchalantly, like mentally, do you ever take a step back and be like, holy smokes, I built something that big? Or is that no big deal? You're about to go build like a rocket ship company. Like, does that phase you anymore? I think it does, depending on what sort of environment I'm in, especially now we just hit one year after the acquisition and I've had a little bit of time to breathe and, and like 
really be proud of of what we've built, not just me. There was a lot of hard work that went into this. But I, I think in technology, like everyone gets so distorted. There's so many big numbers thrown out there, billions, millions. It's easy to just kind of get lost in that. And so I think Privy on its own can be a massive, massive business. And there's so much opportunity ahead of us. And so like, I speak to 100,000 Shopify stores, or we sent 110 million emails this month on behalf of our customers. Like These are massive numbers, but I know they could be much bigger on one hand, and they will be. And then on the other, I'm like, wow, that's actually pretty crazy that you know, we did something at a, at a global scale. So definitely yeah. think about that a lot. Yeah, and especially with the the track e-commerce is going down, it's really just getting started, which is super exciting. So we're going to get into Privy, how you came up with it. We're going to talk about you selling this company, how you scaled. I have a million questions, but first, let's go to life before Privy. Can you give any color? Because I think a lot of people listening, you, you see like the aftermath, like, oh, Ben has this huge company. He's already sold it. But what about those early days where maybe you weren't as confident as a founder, weren't even sure what you were going to do? What did you do pre-Privy? Yeah. So I studied industrial engineering in college. And so as part of that, I had to do two or three semesters of computer science, a very, very like entry level computer science. I'm not a developer, but I, I did gravitate towards those classes. And I kind of understood those concepts, at least how programming works. So that was like one, one thing. The other side of it was both of my parents are entrepreneurs. And uh, I saw like, each of them kind of shift their businesses from traditionally offline to starting to do more with a website and Google ads and email and Facebook and all that stuff. And so I saw them kind of shift their mentality more towards digital marketing. And that, that was like my foundation. What did I actually do after college? I was lucky enough to work for an entrepreneur. He was doing stuff in clean energy and had been successful. So I, I then became like his number his right-hand man, essentially. I was putting together furniture. I was helping him reach out to recruits on LinkedIn. I was helping him put together sales decks and sell, and even in some of the fundraising conversations. So, you know, all of those three experiences, like a little bit of CS background, the entrepreneurial side for my parents and seeing their needs in digital marketing, and the experience I soaked in being the right-hand man to a founder really kind of gave me confidence that, hey, like I could take what I'm learning, helping him build his his venture back business and potentially focus in on something that is like near and dear to my heart that I understand where the trends are going around small business marketing. And so I was like, just just soaking it all in and, and thinking about what I know and, and what I grew up with that gave me the confidence to leave and, and start focusing on privy. That's awesome. You're kind of learning through osmosis and seeing your parents do it, know what it really takes. And then I do I do think that's the ultimate cheat code is before you start your own company, go work for another one. If you can be right next to that founder or CEO, it's, oh my gosh, the, the stuff you can learn if you're just a sponge is, is huge. So how did all of this get started with Privy? Like, I love thinking of it like, how you settled on this idea and how did you even validate that you had something interesting? Yeah. So the privy that everyone knows today, if you're in the e-commerce space, is actually not 
the first iteration of the business. So the original idea for Privy was these local businesses, like my parents, were shifting budgets from traditional like print and local newspapers to digital advertising. And part of what they used to do in the local print advertising was run coupons. And so all I was trying to do initially was give them control to create and distribute a digital coupon. And at, at first, I knew nothing about e-commerce. I knew nothing about Shopify. I was just kind of going off the experience that local businesses needed this sort of technology that lets them control their coupons and distribute them online. That was my focus for about two and a half years. That iteration of the company absolutely failed. I did so many things wrong. I'm, I'm happy to chat about that. I had the wrong team. I had the wrong target customer. I had no distribution strategy. And so we got to, I don't know, maybe 100,000 of annual revenue. And we were, we were flat for two and a half, three years. And uh, thankfully, we were running out of money. And we had an acquisition, small like one of those aqua hires, fall through. And that really forced me to say, okay, oh shit, I'm kind of running out of time here with the team I have. We need to think about a way to grow a real business or shut down. And it was at that point when we, we saw we, what we wanted to do was take some of the pockets of product success we had seen with our users, but find a very specific customer that we could get to repeatedly and that saw the most value out of our product. And it just so happens that we luckily had one of our customers that had a brick and mortar store that also sold products through Shopify. And that was a pivotal moment because that customer said, hey, this is actually amazing. I need to run coupons to grow my email list. And that was like, the key customer insight that served as the foundation for a massive pivot, massive team change, and massive change in company strategy. And that was basically 2015. And, and from 2015 to at the time of our acquisition, we, we basically went from zero to 10 million in revenue very, very quickly. Wow, there's a lot there. But first, backing up, you talked about raising money. How much money did you initially raise for that first idea that, that you said failed? It was about a million dollars that we had raised, maybe just over that. And that was a combination of angels as well as early stage firm. Mm -hmm. And how were you able to raise a million bucks as someone who's never done this before? Was it an existing network or you did you have just an insanely beautiful pitch deck? Like, how did you pull that off? It was a lot of hustle. So I say a million or a million and a half, but you know, I think when you hear that, it sounds like I ran a four month process and like collected checks on the same day. And the reality was that it looked nothing like what I did first was I, I raised probably 250,000 from like the richest people I could get access to in my network. And that was like checks of 25,000. And once I, I did that, the business was showing a little bit more progress. And so we kind of used that momentum, both on the angel money that we closed and a handful of brick and mortar customers to go out and start pitching some angel groups and, and seed firms. And so it was like 
a handful of these rounds that were cobbled together that had me actually distracted focus on fundraising as opposed to focus on customer development, customer feedback, all that sort of thing. So yeah, it was kind of like, I didn't really have an existing network, but I hustled and spent a lot of my time going from the network I had from places like college and, and all that, that that kind of steamrolled me into raising a little bit more money as well. That's really helpful. So you, you raise money, so track, you show traction and you always want to send these monthly updates to investors like, Oh, it's going great and up and to the right. But like, it's clearly not right. And you have to start making some hard decisions where you talked about you hired the wrong people and you have to pivot. Can you just walk through, especially people that are listening that are facing this kind of dark path of having to make a pivot? What was your mindset for doing that? And what were some of the the hardest decisions you had to make to, to pull it off? Yeah, I think because we had a little bit of money on the first iteration, it kind of gave us a comfort zone that we shouldn't have had, right? I, I think, and, and so because of that, I went out and tried to surround myself, which is a good thing with people that know more about the software industry than I do. So we hired this like really amazing VP of product that had seen a lot of success. We hired this amazing like head of sales to build a repeatable sales process. The reality is we didn't have a product. We didn't have product market fit. So we didn't need those people, right? And so the only reason I was surrounding myself with those people is because I thought that's what would help us raise money. When in reality, if we just stayed really, really small, and this is what we did in the second iteration of Privy, there was like four of us for a very, very long time, right? The perfect makeup of a team at that inception phase is just a developer or two, and a non-developer, right? That's doing customer development, that's doing customer support, et cetera. And so in, in iteration two, we, we went from like probably six or seven people to, or eight people down to three or four. And we stayed really, really lean with a makeup mostly weighted towards development plus me for as long as humanly possible. Gotcha. So you make some right hires. It looks good on a pitch deck and for raising money, but it makes sense if you don't have product market fit, you're, you're focusing too soon on those and you're like, oh crap, I, I overhired or I made the, the wrong hires for right now. So you, you see the signals, it's like, okay, Shopify, we're going all in on this. Did you have to kind of hold your investors on along the way to be like, hey, this is going to work? Or did you have, it sounds like you had enough money in the bank where, hey, we have four, six months to really prove this out to the next fundraise? Or was it four or six months till we need to make money and make this profitable. Did you have to choose which path to go down as far as fundraising versus making it profitable and sustainable? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly didn't feel great at the time, but the fact that we were basically out of money meant that our investors were backing off us for a bit. And they were like, oh, these guys are just going to go out of business. That's fine. This is part of the venture game. And so it actually afforded us a little bit of flexibility and time to figure stuff out. So what we did was for the handful of customers that truly, really loved the product, we asked if they'd be willing to pay upfront for a year revenue in exchange for a discount. And that funded the team of four for, I think it was like eight to 12 months, something like that. 
And so we said, okay, like zero distractions, no fundraising, let's figure out this business. And part of that was the pivot. And so we had to kind of change the product a little bit. And so we we shifted to e-commerce. We built out a few integrations that made us more e-commerce focused and centric. And then what we did was we actually went to market with a free version because we had whatever it was, eight months. And so we didn't even have paid versions of the e-commerce iteration of Privy yet. But we just wanted to convince ourselves, A, that we could find distribution, and B, that even on a free product, we would hear similar kind of sentiments from the original e-commerce customer we had and signals on how they were using the product, right? And so we went for a period of two or three months where we had no additional revenue, but the first month we added like 10 new users. The second, it was 20. Then it was 40. Then it was 80. And and it just started like steamrolling, like doubling new user counts month over month. And we were like, oh shit, like there's something here. And then like probably two or three months before we were going to run out of money, we said, okay, let's figure out the first iteration of what premium of Privy for e-commerce looks like. And we started to see like commonalities and feature requests. And so we've since switched away from feature-based plan model, but it was a really low-hanging fruit way for us to validate that we would get ROI on engineering time if we said like, hey, the 20 people asking for this feature, we'll build it if you upgrade to the lowest plan for it. Sound good? And then you go build it and you know exactly who to market to to let them know that it's done. And that was how we started generating revenue for Privy for e-commerce after the pivot. And, and we just kind of repeated that same cycle as a very small team for probably two or three years. We anchored around getting to cash flow positive as like a team goal. And that was like a huge rallying moment. And I'll never forget, basically went out to like this cheap cheap bar for like dinner and we, we, we all invited our plus ones. And that was like a huge moment. You know, because we went from chasing money in the wrong business with the wrong team to a product that was growing really, really quickly that was actually generating cash with a small, really tightly aligned team. It was awesome. Dude, that's awesome. It, it's so true. Like when you have a small team, you can just move so much faster and, and do big things. And what's really impressive there is the fact that you didn't have all these people throwing money at you. It forced you to be like, hey, let's get this out of here. Get people to actually fund this with an annual plan rather than monthly, which is genius. So you're just buying more time. And so you're, you're validating this works, but then you have to flip the switch and get people to pay. And I don't know as much about pricing SaaS as you do, but when you kind of hit on the point, like you started with feature base, but a lot of times that isn't the best because you want to do it based off of usage so you can grow with people or based on seats or, or whatever that is. For, for people that are listening, trying to figure out how to package and price their stuff, well, what advice would you give to them? Because you're kind of smart the way you did it because you're like, we need money right away. So if people want that feature, you got to pay for it. But it's not the sustainable plan. What's that advice you'd give for pricing a, a tool like yours? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different strategies. I'll speak to like, my philosophy and what we acted on, some of the evolutions too. So my feeling, because of how hard it was in the first iteration of Privy, like getting new customers on board, I really felt strongly that like in Privy 2.0, whatever you want to call it, like we have to 
change that. It's got to be easy. It's got to be fast. And we need to tap into a rapidly growing market. And so the free plan was critical. And one of the things that I always talked about was like, we need to show value quickly and we need to be okay leaving money on the table now because if we're successful enough with distribution and adding value, then later we can monetize that using our base. And so we knew that our free plan was like way too generous for many, many years, but that was part of our strategy. And so we got to probably four or five million of revenue before we iterated on our packaging strategy. So the, the initial one was free plan and then feature-based plans. Like you need the most advanced thing, you move to the highest plan. And then we started to realize like that model breaks down because you've got some small businesses that think, hey, if I just had A-B testing, I'm going to make a million dollars. And they upgrade to like 299 per month plan. And then four weeks later, they churn. They're like, this is ridiculous. Like, I have 100 visitors on my site. I don't need A-B testing. And so we, we felt like, oh, that's not really the right model. And so as our product expanded, we realized our strategy needs to line up with what I said, which was like, Privy is going to be the best for small business e-commerce. And we believe in a strong free plan. But what we really wanted for our customers, for them to get all of their marketing infrastructure set up on Privy. And we knew that a bunch of these stores are going to go out of business. That's just part of it. But if they got set up early for free, and then they started to grow, we'd be able to grow with them. And it'd be harder for them to think about switching if we were giving them great service and let them set everything up. So we switched away from the feature-based plan to more of a customer list-based model, like contact-based scaling, which wasn't very innovative. There, there were a lot of email companies out there. That's how HubSpot and the B2B marketing automation folks do it. So I think another big part of it was just like anchoring to business models that they've seen before, as opposed to trying to recreate the wheel with something like a revenue share based model for a marketing automation platform. Yeah, very cool. And and that's also good to hear on the the free version or the freemium model because you're you're wowing people with the product, you catch them early. That way when they have the budget to pay for you or a competitor, you've already earned that trust. You're already in their tech stack and they could just kind of flip a switch. Cause I know a lot of companies I talk to struggle with, oh, do we do freemium or not? But especially in your category where there's such a huge total addressable market and catching them early can, can really be kind of a, a differentiator. So you're, you're, you're growing, you're scaling, you're, you're making money. You have to make this decision of, do we go down this path of not bootstrap because you've raised an initial round, but you, you could go that path or do we put, put our foot on the gas and raise funds? How did you make that decision? Or was that not even a decision to be made? You knew, because I, I saw in Crunchbase, you guys ended up raising more money. Talk through that process, because I think as everybody's growing, they're thinking of the different levers to pull, whether it's fundraising or not. Yeah, great question. So after the pivot, I mean, we had kind of stopped talking to investors for a while, right? We got to cash positive with a small team. We were focused on, just a single product. At the time, it wasn't a full email suite and a full SMS suite. It was just like website conversion, list growth for, for e-commerce. And we did that and we, we offered incredible support. And what we found was like that equation was 
simple, but it, it skyrocketed growth for us. And so that took us from zero to 4 million, something like that. And along the way, our customers were saying, hey, like, we love the support model. We love how easy it is to use Privy. We love how integrated it is with Shopify. Why doesn't Privy do more? Like, why doesn't it do email marketing, right? Why does it just stop here? And we kind of looked at each other in the room. The team was so small. And we were like, wow, maybe this is a much bigger opportunity than we recognize. And so we kind of sat on it for a bit and we started to hear that a lot more. Like, why do I need MailChimp for email marketing? Or why do I need Klaviyo for email marketing? I, I like it here. Can I just do it here? So that was like, in one year, we were seeing that. And the other, we just saw like when we were building, because we had built trust with our, our user base through the support model, anytime we were building a new feature, it would get adopted quickly and it would drive revenue. And so we were like bootstrapping our way, hiring a developer one month, then waiting another four months, hiring another. We were like, let's bring this together. Here's a list of 30 things that we know if we build right now, we'll accelerate our revenue growth. And that the assumption in that, which really got me thinking we need money now, that assumption base didn't include adding more customers. That was just satisfying the existing demand of the users we had today because of the strong freemium model. And so that was when we started essentially networking again, but our existing customers who we did continue to update had realized, oh, wow, like these guys actually completely turned around the business and they're growing faster than most of our portfolio companies without a round of funding. And so it came together like basically overnight, which was really, really cool. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a nice narrative for an investor to see where you don't even, even need new customers to hit some of the goals you have. So even just to take it a step back, what do you attribute these growth success with at Privy? Because I'm hearing a few different things. One, it's a great product, great customer service, especially something like SaaS where retention is key. You're riding a wave that's only getting bigger, which is e-commerce, which is Shopify. You have an amazing offer of it's free. So that's pretty easy for people to jump into it. But but what else can you kind of unpack that was helpful for customer acquisition? I had spoke to Nathan Barry at ConvertKit and he did this bottoms up approach where he's trying to take market share from MailChimp where he's going after like keto bloggers and like men's fashion bloggers in New York. So very niche focused. What are some of the other things you did for, for growth? Yeah. So I think there's, there's four things that really stand out from a strategy perspective. The first was being niche, right? So only for Shopify stores and not just for Shopify stores, because some Shopify stores do a hundred million. It was like only for Shopify stores doing zero to 5 million in sales, right? That was number one. Number two was we got really, really good at distribution through the Shopify app store. So the Shopify app store, that ecosystem has changed a ton, but we were early in the app store, but we weren't the first for pop-ups, for coupons, for email marketing. But we did find that the more active users we have in terms of like store count, the more positive reviews we have and like the more the more features that line up with search demand the better we performed and so we said if we continue to offer amazing support even if free users we can ask them after a positive experience for a review 
that drove a lot of demand for us. And we very quickly overtook a lot of the initial apps that had done the same thing in the Shopify app store as like the number one position for, for so many different marketing categories. Like that alone, I can't stress enough. Those are marketing tactics or positioning tactics that really drove growth for us early in a market. And the only reason that worked, though, was because we had the product to back it up, obviously. But, you know, that differentiation and that distribution was great, including the free plan. And and then early on, like before we offered email, before we offered SMS, right, that's all new over the last few years. We like our wedge was just being the absolute best for that very specific customer at growing their email list, list growth. And that was like a very hot topic in 2015 e-commerce. And so it was just like free plan, distribution through App Store, absolute best at growing your email list, great support. And it was highly repetitive. There was nothing exciting or sexy about it. It was day in and day out, just like delivering on that for years and, and before we expanded. There's something you said about just owning a category and staying at the top and not getting shiny object syndrome with trying to do too much, but just being laser focused. That's that's super impressive. So it's approaching 2021. Your company's acquired in this year. You're acquired by Attentive. This is a huge feat. After you have this growth, you have some rounds of funding. Can you talk about how that process went down? Yeah. It's crazy. It's honestly still hard to believe that it that it happened. But, you know, so 2021, I had really been running the business because of the original iteration of Privy for, call it eight years. And we had grown revenues really quickly. We were starting to see some of our much larger competitors raise mega rounds of funding, right? Because this was during COVID and the e-commerce acceleration. And I, I think everyone understands that story now. So these folks had raised like $100 million plus rounds, like single rounds of funding. And we we had raised a Series A, but like we weren't doing a ton of fundraising. And even though we had raised, we were kind of, it was kind of like the culture was that we were still bootstrapped. And it just occurred to me that if we really wanted to keep growing revenues, doubling revenue every year, which is what we were doing at the time, we would have needed to raise a similar mega round. And because I had been running it for eight years, my heart just wasn't in that. And like, I knew that. And, and I think, I think I'm really good at certain things. And this experience has taught me a lot about myself and my leadership style. And I, I think I'm, I'm really good at the early phase. And now how do you find distribution and differentiate and find growth? But, you know, growing from 10 million to the next 20 million, that's a very different story. And so because of, the landscape raising tons of money because of what I knew about myself. Like, I really did want help in this next phase. And so I checked with a couple companies that had shown interest in us prior. And like, very quickly, because of our positioning in the market and our revenue growth and all that stuff, we actually found ourselves with two offers very, very quickly. You're probably not able to say who those other or the other offer was from. Are you able to say that? I, I don't know. I think I'm under NDA <laughs> with all these. Hopefully in a few years, I'll, I'll be able to cool. share the, the full story. It's super interesting. And the process was super intense. Man, that, that, that's exciting. I believe Especially we landed in the right spot. 
Yeah, well, especially if they're able, there's a little bit of a bidding war going for, especially in 2021 when e-commerce is blowing up even more. So you're negotiating this deal. Like, how do you manage your psychology? Was it a clean, simple deal or was there back and forth where it, it could be done or it doesn't happen? And like, how do you manage your your mind through all this? Yeah. So we, we didn't get into this, but in the journey of Privy, there were more than one acquisitions that actually ended up falling apart. One was early on before we pivoted. I mentioned like an aqua hire. The other two were actually in March when COVID hit. And so I, I had learned a lot from three failed deals that I took with me into this deal. And that was one part of it. The other thing was, everyone says this, but it's, it really is true. Like, you don't sell your position when you're your your company when you're in a position of weakness. The only time to do it is when you're in a position of strength. And because our revenues were growing like crazy, because our customer base was growing like crazy, that was a very different type of negotiation with everyone than the first few times we went through that process. On top of all of that, I did hire a CEO coach for myself that had executed a shitload of deals as a banker, as a venture capitalist, as a CFO of some of these companies. And so having that mentorship, not in the conversations, just with me behind the scenes was was instrumental as well. That's super fascinating. Can you give more color on the impact of having this executive coach or CEO coach? What's the main benefit of that? I think because I hadn't successfully sold a company, there were signals in the process that I was missing, right? Like how a company actually acquires another one. It's not like a product manager at that big company just goes off and says, oh, we should buy this and has the budget to do it, right? It's like CEO, board level approvals, right? It's, it's actually like nailing the strategy before you even sign in LOI, right? So there were all these things that I didn't know the first time or the first few times that I was able to ask the right questions before I, I got too deep in the process with all of the buyers to gauge how serious they were about this, right? Because you like to think everyone has great intentions, but there are a lot of tech incumbents that will throw out offers with no intention of actually completing those deals. And especially during COVID, there was a lot of easy excuses for, for that, right? When really all they want to do is just look at strategy and evaluate the landscape and see, see what's working. So having this coach behind the scenes at every single step of the process really asked, helped me ask the right questions to the CEOs, making sure I understood like what board level visibility looked like throughout the process and what it was going to take to successfully like culminate the deal. And it was excruciating. There was crazy moments throughout, even though a, a lot of these deals were competitive, whatever, like it was, it's just really intense. But having him behind the scenes was, was huge for me personally and my confidence that I was able to exude on all of these calls. Yeah, especially if someone's been there, done that, that's got to give you so much more confidence. That's really helpful. So what advice would you give to anyone that's about to go down this path of starting a SaaS today? Yeah, 
I think a lot of the headlines are like, so-and-so sold for a hundred million. That's amazing. Or so-and-so raised $10 million. And I think a lot of SaaS founders or want to be SaaS founders think that you start a company, you raise money, you sell it in two to three years, and like you can buy an island in the Caribbean, right? And my experience has taught me that it takes 10 years. So the first thing you need to do is pick a target customer that you personally are excited about for solving their problem. Are you excited to solve this person's problem for the next 10 years? And you might have an idea and think you have an idea or like a solution to those problems, but, and maybe that ends up being a great idea, but don't be married to that idea. Be married to solving problems for that customer for 10 years. So I think that's, that's the first thing. Maybe it doesn't take 10 years. Certainly for us, it did. And I think a lot of people didn't hear about Privy for the first seven years that, that we were growing, right? So that's one. The other thing is, is just based on my experience, like I was naive and reading TechCrunch. And I thought the first thing you do when you start a company is you go raise angel money or seed money or something like that. So my thing is don't get distracted with investor conversations, build a very small early team that lets you build product and develop customers at the same time and get a really tight going between potential customers validating that pain having them describe a solution a solution, and then building that. And that tight loop is going to save you millions of dollars. It's going to get the team really tightly aligned from day one, and it's going to have you generating revenue early in a customer-first culture. And that's, that's the key to building great SaaS. And if you can get in that cycle, you find a big market. If you repeat that for years, you're going to find yourself with a really nice business. Yeah, it's real easy to let the high headlines guide the path you think you should go down. But yeah, it's like lean team, good product, customer base that you're excited about that's going to grow. So, I mean, you've seen a lot, especially in the e-commerce space. If you were starting today, what are some categories or industries or trends you're, you're excited about? I realize that's a loaded question. You probably already have some on your roadmap with Attentive and Privy. But but anything that, that comes to mind that you're able to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I'm all about distribution, right? So if I were starting a SaaS company today, I'd be looking for ecosystems of like-minded customers that need functionality that they're not provided today, right? And so the Shopify app store acted as that for Privy and continues to. And I think we have tremendous opportunity there. I think e-commerce and the landscape that Shopify merchants are going through has shifted so much since we started that even today, I think there's, I don't know, something like eight or 10,000 apps in the Shopify app store. I still think there's tremendous opportunity to grow through this ecosystem for new entrants. So I think that's a good one. The other one that, that I think would be interesting to look at is Stripe. So the businesses that are using Stripe, they just launched an app store, I don't know, maybe two or three months ago. And so you've got this whole new kind of category of customer that's transacting online that needs functionality and you could find distribution there. Granted, I don't know what it looks like, but something worth exploring. And then the other app store that I'm excited about that I think has potential is the Slack app store. And you think about small businesses, large businesses, Slack's got a great API and an app store. So I, I'm all about distribution. That's why you hear me gravitating there. 
I, I'm not starting another company. I'm, I'm so excited about Privy and the opportunity that we have and then Shopify. But yeah, those are probably some of the places that I'd be looking next. It's really good. Uh, good advice. Distribution first. There's like a quote, like first time founders focus on products. Second time founders focus on distribution. That's very, very true. Well, I've got two more questions. I'll let you get back on with your life, but you're, you're super busy. You're now at a, a very big company. How do you manage your day to day? Any kind of like advice or hacks or tactics to focus on the strategic stuff as opposed to just getting lost in the the million emails or slack threads that that pile up in a day so as we've grown one of the best parts about being at attentive is that they have the resources and so we've been able to actually mature the privy team invest in some some leaders that are great for this stage and so what that's done is that's afforded me time to just step out of product a little bit more, step out of the customer org a little bit more, step out of marketing a little bit more. And so like right now, I actually am freed up because of the strength of my team to operate our podcast, the e-commerce marketing school, which is awesome that you listen. It's great to have you on the other day. And then also think about like the next six, 12, 18 months, like what sort of strategic alignment needs to exist that doesn't today. And so a lot of my time now is not spent on support tickets like it was six years ago. It's more spent on grabbing some data from our, our database with, with our analytics team, thinking about like macro trends in e-commerce and making sure my team is aligned on our ideal customer profile, our current horizon of the business and the next horizon of growth that we see ahead of us. And so it's a little bit less like I'm busy from nine to five and it's more like I'm creating narratives and decks that that are backed through all the activity in the company today. So team, team unlocks that for me. Yeah, allows you to be more proactive than reactive too, which is which is really nice. A, a question I like to ask everybody: What's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your career? Oh wow, that's really tough. We had a very high-profile angel investor. The first iteration of Privy, his name's Mike Volpe. He was the chief marketing officer of HubSpot from founding through IPO. He put in a very small amount of money into the first iteration and we failed. And that, that was fine. He understood that. He was very cool about it. But as I started to find traction in the new iteration of Privy, I kind of had exhausted all of my original network around investors and very experienced operators. But so I couldn't, I could barely get anyone to listen to me. Not when we were at a million of revenue. I'm talking like, in the early days of the pivot, like when we got 10 users and then 20 and 40, and I like had this spreadsheet and literally no one would spend time with me other than Mike Volpe, who thought it was fascinating that we were finding distribution through some new channels that he hadn't seen. And we built a relationship that way. We barely knew each other at the time. Like he did not need to do that. Um, and we've become friends. He ended up being on the board of Privy. This was before the acquisition as my independent board member. Like he took a chance and spent time on me and I have no idea why. He also invested later on and thankfully he had an incredible outcome on that, but he didn't have to do any of those things and, and he did. And I, I have a lot to thank him for. 
Man, what a cool story. And to get access to his experience and knowledge with what he's done and seen with HubSpot is that's ridiculous. Yeah, it was cool. And now we're we've we've become good friends. We went to lunch the other day and we had a lot to laugh about. So it's 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 a pretty cool part of the journey was building that relationship with him. Yeah, that's awesome. How has being a girl dad impacted you, you as a business owner or as a as a leader? It's taught me to be a lot more patient. I, just being a parent, not necessarily specific to to girls, and I think that's that's a big part of it. I I think it's important as a founder to have urgency, and there's times where you need to be impatient because you should always expect more faster. But then there's times where you need patience. And that makes all the difference in the leadership style, inspiring people and showing them where we're headed and that we're making the right bets now. I, I really have learned a lot being a of, of two young kids, specifically around patience. Totally agree. Patience and it makes you real productive at work because you, you can't procrastinate because <laughs> daycare won't wait for you. Um, well, definitely. Cool. Well, Ben, this was awesome, man. Again, I've, I've been following what you guys have been doing at Privy for quite a while. So this is really fun for me. But if people want to learn more about Privy, about you or the podcast, where can we send them? Yeah. So Privy.com, P-R-I-V-Y. Check it out. A podcast is a daily podcast about how to grow your e-commerce store. You'll get to know me a little bit. That's the e-commerce marketing school podcast, or you can follow me on Twitter at Jabawi, J-A-B-B-A-W-Y. Awesome. Well, again, Ben, thank you so much, man, for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Jim. This was awesome. Appreciate you having me. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep. We have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthIt.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.